Have any of you ever been to England? Anybody? Okay, quite a few. Uh, I, I have not. But from what I've heard, there are many, many neat things to see over there, like the Tower of London, Stonehenge, Big Ben, Westminster Abbey, right? Well, according to the BBC, since 2009, something else has been gaining a lot of tourist attractions in England. And you know what that is? It's a wall. Charles Hart and Dennis Hawes are neighbors in a small town in England called Fleetwood. They both are married. They both have lovely homes. And they both cannot stand each other. In fact, these neighbors, they hate each other. And the feud began back in 2008 when Dennis Hawes and his wife, they built a sun terrace on their kitchen roof. Well, this ticked off their neighbor, Charles Hart. Hart was upset because he was not consulted about the terrace since it would now overlook his garden. Hart felt that the terrace was an invasion of his privacy, and he was ticked off. So in an act of revenge, Hart built what is locally known as the Great Wall of Fleetwood. I have a picture of it for you. First, here's, here's the builder. You, you, you can see what he added to. And then here in the center of the screen, you can see the wall. Hart built a barrier that is 16 feet high and 26 feet long. It covers the entire length notice of both properties. And as you can see, the view from the terrace is now obstructed by his ginormous wall. But not only that, according to the BBC, listen to me, thousands of tourists come to see this year after year. Hart was offended because his neighbor did not consult him about building that sun terrace. So what did he do? He built a wall. That is, he created a barrier to separate him from his neighbor. And what I find so fascinating about the story is that it perfectly illustrates what sin does to relationships. Sin separates. Sin, especially in the context of relationships, it divides. And the primary way that sin separates people is by creating a barrier of offense, a wall, if you will. Now, you may not be able to physically see this wall, but you can definitely feel it, can't you? I mean, think for a moment about the last time someone sinned against you or hurt you. I mean, it could be something small, like maybe they, you received a rude remark. Or maybe something more significant, like, like maybe having a friend lie to you or deceive you. Think about the time, the last time someone sinned against you. 
that sin created a barrier between you and the other person, didn't it? There may not have been a physical wall like the Great Wall of Fleetwood, but a barrier was there, wasn't there? You could feel it. I remember once when I was in high school, I was with a bunch of my friends, and we were joking around as guys often do, and I remember I said something very hurtful to one of my friends. It was, it was a sinful, rude, harsh remark. And immediately, immediately after I said those things, I felt terrible. But not only that, the moment those words left my mouth, I felt a great distance between me and my friend, even though we were still standing in the exact same room. Right? My sin created a barrier. It separated you see, <laughs> this is what you know. The Great Wall of Fleetwood that Charles Hart built, that was simply a reflection of the real barrier between him and his neighbor due to sin. Sin separates. So here's my question this morning. How can we remove such walls? What is needed for relationships that have been broken and distance created because of sin? What is needed for reconciliation to take place? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 13. That's page 264 in that paperback Bible. This morning, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel, the, the last half of chapter 13 and 14. And you know what these chapters are full of? Sin. <laughs> lots and lots of sin. And you know what else they're full of as a result? Walls and barriers walls and barriers, all because of sin. As we're going to see, sin is literally separating everyone in these chapters. In particular, sin is separating David and his son Absalom. But get all of this. Strangely enough, though there are all these barriers, relational barriers between everyone because of sin, strangely enough, when we get to the end of chapter 14, we find David and his son Absalom reunited. As many commentators have pointed out, our passage this morning, 2 Samuel 13, verse 23, all the way to chapter 14, verse 35, this, this big swath, it forms one connected story. It's one connected story. And as we're about to see, the overall storyline of our text this morning, it follows the story of David and Bathsheba in chapter 11. Our story begins with a sexual sin, Amnon and Tamar, followed by a murder, Absalom killing Amnon, followed afterwards by someone coming to David to tell him a parable. 
the story of David and Bathsheba, it was the prophet Nathan. Here we're going to find a woman from Tekoa. And as we're about to see this parable from this woman from Tekoa, it appears, it seems to lead David and Absalom to reconciling. Yet, well, at first glance, the end of chapter 14 appears to be the restoration of a broken relationship. Please hear me, it's not. Instead, you know what it is? It's a counterfeit reconciliation. It's not genuine. And you know how we know this is the case? Because as both our passage and the following chapters make abundantly clear, one vital element is missing in David and Absalom's reunited story. Truthfully, (laughs) there are lots of important elements that are missing in their reunited story, but there's one critical one, and you know what that is? It's repentance. Faith, please hear me. Many components are needed for two people to be reconciled. Two people have been separated due to some person's sin. Foundationally, there must be forgiveness. For the wall of offense to come down, you must forgive your offender. You must forgive your offender. But please hear me, the work's not done. That is not enough to bring about reconciliation in the relationship. No, for true reconciliation to take place, there must also be, please hear me, repentance on part of the offender. You can do your part if you've been sinned against to forgive. And as God's people, we ought. Indeed, we're commanded to. But if the person who has sinned against you does not own their sin and repent of their sin, your relationship cannot be reconciled. And that's precisely what we're going to see Absalom. I mean, he lacks a lot of stuff, (laughs) okay? One of the things in particular we see is, unlike his father David, when confronted by the prophet Nathan, he repented and he was reconciled to God. Absalom, when he's brought back into the presence of his father David, no repentance. You see, Faith, I want to argue that our our passage this morning, it illustrates this really important truth, and that is this. There can be no reconciliation without repentance. Instead, you'll have a cheap imitation that will lead to greater relational problems. And if you doubt me, just keep reading on in 2 Samuel. (laughs) It doesn't get better for David and Absalom. And just think for a moment about how true this statement is. There can be no reconciliation without repentance. This is not only true biblically, but we also see this as it should be in life. How how many husbands forgive their wife for a sin she committed, yet instead of the wife owning her sin and repenting of it, she just brushes it aside as if nothing had happened and just tries to move forward with it? Or, Or how many husbands in their relationship they sin and get angry towards their, their wife. Yet instead of owning their sin and repenting of their sin of anger and made everybody in the house upset, he just moves on as if nothing happened. Friend, there's no reconciliation there. There's no biblical solution. 
and it will just produce more problems. There can be no reconciliation without repentance. And before we go on any further, I just want to make a pastoral application here. Is there something you need to repent of? Is there a relationship where you're experiencing some distance? There's a barrier. And it's because of your sin. The other person has forgiven, but you have not repented. There can be no reconciliation without repentance. So, th there's a lot going on in these, these one and a half chapters, I guess, right? In the, in the next week and the following week, I want to take a moment to kind of zoom out to see what's happening in the, the big story of redemptive history in these chapters. But for this morning, I just kind of want to zoom in and focus in on the relational dynamics. And there's a couple of things that we can learn from this sad tale. In fact, I believe the author intentionally and <laughs> I think rather brilliantly highlights three failures of Absalom and David that prevent them from fully reconciling, both between each other and others. And these are the actions we must refuse to take if we're going to pursue genuine reconciliation. There's three things, but good news. We're only going to have time for the first two, okay? So, you're welcome, okay? <laughs> and the first is this. Learning from the failures here, real reconciliation, we're going to notice, it refuses vengeance. It refuses vengeance. Have your eyes look at chapter 13. I'm going to begin, actually, in verse 22. So, as we talked about last week, um, Amnon violated his half-sister Tamar. Let the reader understand it was a grievous, terrible, wicked sin. Tamar is the sister of Absalom. And Absalom, after he hears of the wicked thing that Amnon has done to his sister, he takes her into his home to care for her. And notice what we read in verse 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Big offense. There is a huge offense in rift between Amnon and Absalom. Absalom, as my wife likes to correct me. Absalom. Um, there's an M there. You know the thing. Okay, now, notice what we see next, beginning in verse 23. After two full years, so think about how long he's been simmering on that. Think of how long that hatred has been brewing in his heart. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. There's going to be a feast. 
And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. He's, he's inviting his dad, David, to the party. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. Now notice, David, again, he is a terrible father, but he does have some idea of what's going on in his home because notice how he responds. He says, and the king said to him, why should he go with you? Verse 27, but Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now, if we are reading our Bibles carefully, especially if we're reading First and Second Samuel carefully, this is not the first time we've come across a sheep-shearing festival. In fact, who can tell me the last time we read about a sheep-shearing festival in 1 Samuel? Can anyone remember? It was in 1 Samuel what? Do you remember? 25. And do you remember who we met at that time? Two people, husband and wife. Nabal and Abigail. That's right. And do you remember what does Nabal's main name mean? Say it like you mean it. Fool. Fool. So the last time we came across an episode where there's sheep shearing, we met Abigail and Nabal. And Nabal, his name means fool. File that away. As, as several commentators have pointed out, uh, you could say this. I'm going to try to say it slowly. Sheep Shearing time was sharing time. And I'm only going to say that once. That is to say, such occasions when they were shearing the sheeps, Sean the sheep, okay, they called for feasting. And we see this both in our text and also back in 1 Samuel 25. Indeed, there is this there's old custom, sort of an unwritten law, that at this time, sheep shearing time, you gave gifts to those who had been protecting your flocks. And you'll recall that is precisely what David did for Nabal's men and Nabal's flock back in 1 Samuel 25. David's men came upon Nabal's flock and they protected the sheep. Yet do you remember how he responded to David's kindness? Think about it. At a time when it's customary to expend hospitality to those who do nice things to your flock, you know what Nabal did? He basically said to David, hey, you and the guys go pound sand. Get out of here. Remember this? There was an offense. David was sinned against. And do you remember what David wanted to do? What did he want to do? Kill him. Nabal and everybody. Yet did he? No. And why was that? It was because Abigail reminded David of this very, very important truth, and that is, vengeance is the Lord's, not who? Yours. Vengeance is the Lord's, she tells David, not yours. Remember this? Now look at what we have here in the text I just read. 
Okay, notice the similarities here. This is not by accident. The, the author wants us to bring these things to our mind so we properly understand what's happening here. Notice the similarities. First, there's both sheep, a sheep-shearing festival as well as an offense. In 1 Samuel 25, it was an offense between David and Nabal. Here, the offense is between Absalom and Amnon. But not only that, there are two fools. Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, and can you think of who else is called a fool in 2 Samuel 13? Who's called a fool twice? Who's called an outrageous fool in 2 Samuel 13? Amnon, and who calls him that? Tamar. So do you see Nabal the fool in 1 Samuel 25? And now here we have Amnon acting the fool. Another Nabal here in 2 Samuel 13. Yet as we're about to see, Absalom is no David. Indeed, he's the worst version of David, for notice what he does next. Look at verses 28 and 29. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Now listen to these words. Oh, the blasphemy. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. Who does that sound like? Joshua. <laughs> Before they go into the promised land. And I'm sure the servants would have been holy smokes. He's calling upon Joshua and he wants us to do this. Just to, it just shows you how Absalom is out of his mind. Be courageous and valiant. Verse 29, so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Notice, when David encountered the fool Nabal, he was ready to take vengeance but was restrained. Absalom showed no such restraint and no Abigail was forthcoming to warn him. But there's something else the author wants us to see. Notice, just like Nabal, who died while his heart was merry with wine, Amnon dies while his heart is merry with wine. Earlier in this chapter, Amnon played the fool, as Tamar, Tamar said twice, when she warned him against doing a disgraceful thing and charged that he was acting like one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Friend, please hear me. Amnon lived like a Nabal, and he died like a Nabal. Furthermore, notice the irony here. It is ironic that Absalom's vengeance for Amnon's violation of Tamar involved food. Remember this? What was the scheme that was set up so that Amnon could lose Tamar to him? I'm sick, please come, please feed me, create a meal so I might eat from your hand. Amnon's use of food was a ruse that came back on his own head because he dies as another festival, a feast. 
Now notice what happens next after Amnon has been killed. Verse 30, while they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, ha, 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 the crafty guy from the previous passage, but Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother said, let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. Now, how would he know that? How would this crafty guy who led to the awful sin earlier in the chapter know about this terrible murder now? Let's keep reading. He says, For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. He, he knew all along what was going to ha happen. Verse 33, Now therefore let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Verse 34, But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept watch lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him and by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said. So it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. Now, I do have to say, the, these next couple verses, it's a little ambiguous uh, in the original language. For example, that verse there, he mourned for his son day after day. Which son? Is he, is he mourning for Amnon? Or is he mourning because he's not around Absalom? I think based on what, how the narrative follows, I think it's because he's mourning that he's, he's no longer with his son Absalom. And that's how the ESV understands it too, because notice verse 38, help my eyes. So Absalom fled and went to Jerusalem. Yes, and was there three years. Verse 39, and the spirit of the king longs to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Uh, how, how many of you own a dog? Uh, quite a few of you. We have quite a few dog owners. Kids, if you want to pet a dog, go to any of these people's houses. Um, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're not getting one. No. Uh, last December... So this was, yeah, a month ago. A pet dog was almost eaten by a mountain lion after the mountain lion broke into the family's home in Santa Barbara County in California. Get a load of this. According to Newsweek, the mountain lion smashed through a glass door at the home of Ted Adams in order to snatch Buddy, 
a dog belonging to his sister who had come to visit. Buddy had been barking really, really, really loud around 8.30 p.m. local time, but no one could figure out why that was. Then suddenly, they heard a tremendous crash, and when they went downstairs, they found a huge hole in their French doors, and they had just figured that the lion had come in, grabbed the dog, and left. But the lion didn't leave. They soon realized that the mountain lion was on their property, and you know where it was? In the bedroom. So they decided to lock the mountain lion in the bedroom while Adams went to get his gun and his wife, Tracy, got some bear spray. When they re-entered the bedroom, they opened the door just as the mountain lion was about to eat the dog, Buddy. So Tracy went over and gave it a blast of the bear spray. You know what happened next? The mountain lion lost interest in the dog, but became very interested in Tracy. So you know what she did? She nailed it again with her bear spray. <laughs> and the mountain lion this time ran out of the house back into the woods. Thankfully, none of the humans were injured, and while the dog suffered minor injuries, he's doing just fine. Now, think about your dog. Dog who I assume most of you probably love. Can you imagine that happening? Now, beside the fear factor, I think what makes this, this story so troubling, especially to dog owners, is that that mountain lion was trying to steal something that didn't belong to him. Who did the dog belong to? It belonged to Adam's sister. Faith, vengeance belongs to God. It is not ours to have. And if we're going to experience genuine reconciliation, if we're going to pursue genuine reconciliation with those who sin against us, those who offend us, then we must refuse to enact vengeance. Yet this is precisely what Absalom failed to do with his half-brother Amnon. Instead of taking revenge, you know what God's word would have us to do if we're to pursue reconciliation and peace? God's word would have us bless those who sin against us. I mean, Paul could not be clearer on this matter, could he, in Romans 12, 17. What does he write there? He says, repay no one evil for evil. Black letters on white paper. Repay no one evil for evil, but he says, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What are you going to do to bless them? Right? And this is what makes the counsel of God's word so radical. Where are you going to hear this? I promise you this. If you're having relationship difficulties because someone sinned against you and you go to a therapist, they will not tell you, forgive and bless the one who has sinned against you. They will tell you, get rid of toxic people in your life. I got news, we're all toxic. Why? Because we have sin. So what do you do? Absalom 
foolishly and acted vengeance. He stole something that wasn't his. And golly, if we're going to have peaceful, God-honoring relationships in our church, we must obey God's word and refuse to take vengeance because it doesn't belong to us. Instead, by the Spirit's power and with God's grace, let us choose to bless those. This doesn't mean we don't have discernment. This doesn't mean we don't pursue correct biblical justice. But on the street level, it means I don't take vengeance into my own hands. So let's, let's apply this in the context of family. Christian, do you have a sibling who is often mean or hurtful towards you? Are you tempted to get back at him or her? Remember, vengeance is the Lord's. Your suffering does not go unnoticed by him. He sees you. He cares for you. And what he commands of you in that situation is that you consider how you can bless your enemy. So think about siblings. Think about a spouse. How can you bless them? What good could you do to them? Could you give them a word of encouragement? A nice gesture? Provide some tangible need? Keep in mind, they may not appreciate it, but God does. Indeed, he will smile with delight as he sees his child loving his enemy, though who has sinned against them. But then second, I remember there's only two. You're welcome. Second, we'll get to the third one next week. Second, real reconciliation, it rejects false counsel so when we last left Absalom, he fled after killing his brother. Now, why do you think he did that? Did he want to get some me time? Right? Just on it. Yeah, I'm just going to take a vacation. Why do you think he fled? Because he knew he was guilty. And he knew God's law. And he knew God's law demanded he die. But notice what happens next. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many, many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? Now keep in mind, this was a common thing, that the king would settle disputes problems that were happening uh, in the kingdom. She said, save me, king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? She answered, alas, I am a widow, for my husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. And there was no one to separate them, and, and one struck the other and killed him. Now, you need to 
she's presenting this as a, it was an accident that happened. Verse 7, And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. So do you know what, see what the woman is saying, okay? She's saying, look, I'm, a, I'm in a bad spot. Yes, my son killed his brother, but that was an accident. She's saying, look, I'm a widow, and if you put to death my only living son, if you do what the law says then I'm going to suffer even more. David, have heart. Don't follow God's law. Look at my great need. Verse 8, Then the king said to the woman, uh, Go to your house, and I'll give orders concerning you. He's basically saying, Okay, thanks. I'll get back to you. You don't call me, I'll call you. Okay? But she presses in. Verse 9, and the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and at my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. And he said, verse 10, and the king said, Okay, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So what does David do? He chooses not to follow God's law concerning this matter, but instead he gives in to the woman's emotional plea. Now, notice what happens. Here again, she's, a, she's another Nathan. She's giving a parable to get David to a conclusion, and we see the punchline here in the following verses, verse 12. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Okay, speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. Who's the banished one? Absalom. She says, look, we all must die. We're like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered again. She's saying, look, Amnon's dead. There's nothing we can do to bring him back. Why should you go ahead and kill Absalom? And you know who's going to suffer, David? Just like I would suffer as a widow if I didn't have any sons, you kill your other son, the nation Israel is going to suffer. You're doing a bad thing to the nation of Israel if you follow God's law. So notice what she says. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who will destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord the king will set me at rest, 
Now notice what she does here. For my Lord, the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my Lord the king speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? Okay, David, David again, he, he, he's picking up some cues, and we're going to talk about this more next week. And what does she say? The woman answered and said, yes, as surely as you live, my Lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Now notice, what does David do to this counsel? He's getting counsel from the woman of Tekoa. What does he do? Verse 21, Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man, Absalom. Real reconciliation rejects false counsel. I recently came across this meme on Instagram the other day. It says, beware of scams. I bought my wife expensive jewelry on eBay, but was sent golf clubs instead. <laughs> How horrible, right? Was it really a scam? Truly, though, there are scams out there, aren't there, right? We, we can be tricked. We can be deceived into doing something. We can be tricked into thinking we're going to get one thing, but in reality, we get something else. Well, friends, far greater than getting scammed on eBay is getting bad counsel, especially when it comes to matters of reconciliation. Indeed, we who are people of the book, people of God's word, we must reject false counsel. Yet, sadly, that is precisely what David failed to do. You know what made the woman of Tekoa so dangerous? What made her so dangerous is she spoke in half-truths. It is these subtle half-truths that made her parable so different from the truth-bearing story that God brought to David through the mouth of the prophet Nathan. Notice first what she's doing. First notice she engaged in legal misdirection. She spoke of a son who had accidentally slain his brother. But was that the case with Absalom? No. He had committed cold-blooded, premeditated murder. In fact, class, how long had he been thinking about doing this? Two years. Just a little off, but she's spinning it. Second, to further minimize the significance of Absalom's crime, the woman made sentimental manipulation. Notice what she says in verse 14. She says, nothing can bring the dead son back to life. So, so why should another son be lost just to uphold legal niceties? She then added to her manipulation of David through flattery. Did you see it there in verse 17? It's, you, can, you can hear the hiss. 
just as the serpent had told Eve in the garden that by rewriting the rules, she and Adam would become like God, knowing good and evil. Now this wise woman suggests to David that he edit the requirements of God's word concerning this matter, right, and enhance his own heavenly credentials. Finally, she argues that by refusing to restore Absalom, David was injuring Israel's future. But let's think about this for a moment. Is her scenario apples to apples? No. Unlike her fictitious situation, Absalom was one of David's many sons. And it's very likely that God had already designated Solomon as David's heir at this time. So her accusation bore no more than a superficial resemblance to the actual situation. And this this is what I want us to see. We need to see what she's doing. This is what she's doing, Faith. By pitting God's justice against the welfare of a son, by employing sentimental manipulation, and by confusing David's duty to the nation, the woman of Tekoa used her parable to accomplish the opposite of what Nathan intended with his earlier parable. Commentator William Blakey hits the nail on the head. He writes this. Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience as against his feelings. The woman of Tekoa's, as prompted by Joab, was to rouse his feelings against his conscience. In this way, despite the surface similarities, one was a true servant of God, whereas the other was a lying serpent, servant of Satan. And David's unable to discern the both. Faith. Beware of people like the woman of Tekoa. Beware of those people who make your feelings and your emotions more important and authoritative than God's word. Beware of those people whose counsel is man-centered, not God-centered, especially when it comes to counseling relationships, counsel concerning relationships. And I I just need to, to tell you the area where I see the voice of the woman of Tekoa invading Christian families where there's counsel that's elevating a parent's emotion and feelings towards a son versus the authoritative word of God is when a child has a sexual disordered desire. Where Christian parents know what God's word says and would have them say and speak to a wayward child, a good word, a life-giving word. 
but there are voices infiltrating the church that say to ignore the authority of God's word, the wisdom and life-giving counsel, but to elevate feelings and emotions. And But just notice the result if, of such things. Just as David failed to enact justice towards his son Amnon because of his sin, David is going to again fail to enact justice towards Absalom because of his sin. In fact, David, had David done what was right to Amnon, none of this would have happened. Indeed, just as David's lack of justice with Amnon caused more problems, as we're about to see in the chapters that follow, David's choice here to follow his emotions and feelings rather than God's law is going to create extraordinary havoc in his house. Headline, reject false counsel. Consider for a moment how influential people have been in David's life up until this point. I think this is another reminder for us to be careful and discerning about our friends and who we seek advice and counsel from. Better yet, whomever we receive counsel from, let us have the humility and the diligence to make sure such counsel is biblical. Now, next week, we'll look at the third aspect of reconciliation. But for now, let me just, just kind of tell you what happens next and just say that once Absalom is actually brought back into the king's presence, there is no repentance in him. Indeed, there's just a further display of pride and self-glory. In fact, look at the last verse of chapter 14, verse 33. Though this appears like a happy ending, it's not. Rather, it's the start of great chaos. It's counterfeit reconciliation. Look at what we see. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Faith, there can be no reconciliation without repentance. That is, you must own your sin, express godly sorrow over your sin, and then turn away from it back to the Lord. That's what genuine repentance is. Yet as helpful as this is for personal relationships, friend, the most important reconciliation you need to have is with your God. Please hear me. For your reconciliation with God is far greater than any earthly relationship, for it carries with it eternal consequences. Friend, the Bible teaches that in our natural state, we are not just indifferent towards God, we're actually God's enemies. There's enmity between us and God, and it comes from both sides, ours and his. This is to say there's a huge barrier between us and God because of our sin. Our hearts are willful and rebellious and insubordinate, and his wrath is on us because of our rebellion. God is actually justifiably angry with us and we deserve his eternal punishment because of our sin. This is true of every person in their natural state. That's the bad news. 
But the good news is that God has made provision for our sin. Amen? As we've seen in our study of 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel 7, we learn that all of God's saving promises, all of God's saving promises are going to come through a Davidic son. And what our passage this morning makes abundantly clear is it's not any of these guys. It's not any of these guys. This is to say this passage forces us to look to a future son of David, one who will perfectly obey God's law. And that future son has come, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Friend, the good news of Scripture is that God sent Jesus Christ to suffer and die on the cross, not for his friends, but for his enemies, you and me. On the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the full wrath of God, the full judgment we are owed for our sins. Then three days later, Christ rose from the dead, proving himself to be the Son of God, and listen to me, and saving all who would repent of their sin and trust in him. Friend, for you to be reconciled for God, for your relationship to be restored, something is required of you. And you know what that something is? It's faith and repentance. Christ has come. Indeed, what are Jesus' first words in Mark chapter 1, verse 16? The first words he says in the, in the Gospel of Mark are what? He says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, what? Repent and believe in the gospel. Friend, if you want your relationship to be restored with God due to sin, and you to become part of the family of God and to be saved, trust in Christ and turn and repent of your sin. Have you done that? Has there been a moment when you've turned from trusting your own righteousness and said, no, I'm believing that Jesus Christ, his work was sufficient to do everything necessary to save me, a sinner. Salvation comes by faith. It has been 11 years since Charles Hart built that huge wall. 11 years. And you know what? Still standing. Friend, don't let that be true of you and God. Your sin has made a barrier. Turn from your sin. Turn towards Jesus, trusting that his death and resurrection are sufficient to forgive you of your sins and to reconcile you to God. And may we, the redeemed, those who know the Lord, let's pursue biblical reconciliation. Let's refuse to take vengeance. Let's reject false counsel. And for those who have been forgiven much in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are sinned against, may us be quick to forgive our offender. Amen? Let's pray.